Father Gregory, summer is here. It is hot. There is a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of smoke in the air. But but I think probably there's still a lot of optimism and a lot of love of the summer. A lot of people really like the the warmer weather that summer brings. They can do all of the things outside and and they're they're really really excited about summer. So happy summer to everybody. Uh, mm-hmm. By the time you're listening to this, uh, you know, happy Fourth of July. Hope that you all are able to spend some time with loved ones and uh, have a have a have a great day. This is going to be a little weird, you know. Usually the banter is like the non-theological part, but I've just been encountering this idea over and over and over again that I just I just want to share it with everybody. I'm I'm kind of really excited about it, and Do it. and it's Put it just out there. it's just it's the positive message that we so often forget. I think so often we think of Christianity as juridical, as judicial, you know, the problem is guilt and it's and it's a solution to this problem of guilt. And and I'm encountering so many different things reminding me that especially within our orthodox tradition, sin is is an illness. It's a weight, it's a burden. And Christ comes to heal us and to free us. And and so often I think we, we kind of have this idea because we have this juridical mindset or judicial mindset about it. We have this idea of, you know, I, I have to kind of do my part, whatever the bare minimum is, with the goal of, so God will leave me alone. Hmm. Uh, which is not, that's not our, our worldview or our, our orthodox view at all. It's It's... To be with God, to to be together with God, that's where the joy is. That's where life is. That's where light is, and and so it's not about you know what is this? What are the things I have to do to fulfill some kind of legal requirement so that I can basically be left alone? No, it's it's God is waiting there to heal us. That's that's really interesting. It's like, where does that come from? You think this comes from like the secular age, like this kind of division between, you know, like Charles Taylor, the philosopher, he talks about the division between the transcendent and the eminent or the public sure. and the private. Um, well, I mean, we really see this kind of judicial mindset come into Christianity with Anselm, as far as I, as far as I know, because that's where we really even have an understanding of a legal system that kind of backs it up. Mm. Um, it's kind of based on like a feudal legal system that doesn't even exist till the middle ages. Yeah, I guess I've never heard anyone describe it that way though. So the God will leave me alone. Yeah. But I, I don't think that anybody or most people are not going to say that out loud, but I think that sometimes that's kind of how we operate. Kind of, kind of like Christian Smith talks about how the, maybe the religion of America and especially of America's youth is moralistic therapeutic deism Hmm. and people criticized him saying well nobody nobody calls themselves a moralistic therapeutic deist and he said i don't i know i'm not saying that that people identify as this but this is kind of effectively how we operate and i i think sometimes that's effectively how we operate i've i've gotta you know i gotta go to church or i gotta do my prayer rule or i gotta do the fast or whatever it is so that i can do the things that i want to do huh and 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 kind of so that i can be so i can get in good and and then kind of go my own way be free to do whatever i want right yeah i I, maybe that's you know 
that could speak to like a bad theology about God. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, God and is think, like the cosmic Scrooge or the right or just overbearing primarily the judge, right? Yeah. Or just only the judge. And, yeah. and I just need to escape the judgment and then I, I, I can go. Yeah. That's gosh. Wow. That's yeah. That's yeah. No good. Yeah. And I think we even, this kind of is how we've got the, the reading about the centurion coming up mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you well, know, me, in, in Matthew's gospel, ends, it ends with Christ saying, you know, many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham uh, and the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. And I I think we can even see this kind of distinction between an obsession with law and legalism, even at the time of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Because the people he's saying are, are not going to be sitting down with Abraham are those who are obsessed with the law and with this legal understanding. Um but the people who are going to come and sit down are those who earnestly desire to be with God, recognizing like the centurion does not, it is not because of my own unworthy or not because of my own worthiness, but simply because this is who can give the healing that I need. Right. I am unworthy for you to come into the roof of my house, but just say the word and my servant or my child will be healed. Yeah. There is final judgment that, you know, we'll all have to, stand before, but I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. If people, if they kind of reduce God to only a judge, like you got to pass the test mm-hmm. in order to get through kind of thing. And it's and not about communion and fellowship and union right. with God. Um, right. You can definitely kind of get a distorted image there that then has a bad imp- uh, or negative implications for sure. Yeah. And a lot of the image, even a lot of the images of God as judge in the, especially in the old Testament are not necessarily like God as judge who ensures that his own law is upheld. It's God as judge who discerns between people, right? Uh, it's, it's, the, it's the God who ensures that justice is done amongst his children. Mm. Mm. So, wow, okay. All right, so you're listening to Church Coffee Pod, where the theology is never watered down and the conversation keeps flowing. I'm Father Bryce. And I'm Father Gregory. So, uh, well, for, for July, you know, what we decided to, to discuss is uh, the service of the consecration. Yes. Very and exciting. Uh, because um, Holy Trinity Cathedral is looking forward to its being consecrated, mm-hmm. uh, scheduled for October 8th of this year. So it's a very exciting time. It um, is. We're doing a lot of work to get ready for it. And um, the c- c- cathedral community has worked very hard uh, to bring the church to where it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, with, with the building of the cathedral, you know, with the adornment of the iconography, with the furnishing of the church, getting it all ready, um, as, as a consecrated space of worship and for the glory of God. And so we're kind of reaching that point now where we're getting ready mm-hmm. for the consecration. And a lot of people are like, what happens at a consecration? Yeah. Uh, a lot of people do- have never seen a consecration. I personally have never seen a consecration. I don't know Me if neither. you've ever seen one. Nope. Uh, and we're, we're priests and we've never right. seen one. Uh, so it's, it, you know, not a common, have, not a common event. No. Um, but it is like a baptism for a church. Um, uh-huh. so whereas baptisms are very common and that's something that people have seen and, and, and can connect with and relate to, uh, it's very similar in some ways. And so okay. it is, it is often called the baptism of the church and okay. there's several components and I'm going to run through them and stop me, you know, whenever you want. So questions or, or clarifications or whatnot. Sounds good. Yeah. So diving right in, one of the first and kind of components that really stands out about a consecration is the relics. You have the relics of the martyrs 
and um, usually three of them, or maybe always three of them. I don't know. And uh, yeah. they're they're brought um, by the hierarch. Uh, in this case, the archbishop is scheduled to come and, and consecrate our church. Okay. And um, so, you know, the the relics are are brought into the church um, and on the patent. So the same plate that we we put oh. the um, omno on, and the altar table is just bare. And then there's just like a, a maybe a condili there, and the relics are set on the altar table. And then there's a brief little service um, where the troparia or the hymns for the saints are chanted. Okay. Um, and then eventually the hierarch goes out to the throne. And so then that's the, the hymns for the saints of whose those relics, relics are there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And then the clergy, you know, escort the hierarch to the throne and then they get a blessing and they start the hierarchical vespers. Mm-hmm. And so basically you celebrate the vespers, the hierarchical vespers as you would. There are some special hymns and readings that are, are relative to the consecration service. Okay. You know, talking about like the consecration of the temple and the days of Solomon mm-hmm. uh, and, and making references to the consecration uh, in various places. And so that's kind of that all happens on the evening before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that's that basically kind of closes the evening before. And then the next morning, uh, come to church, we start the orthros as we normally would. The hierarchs arrive at the church, you know, at the typical time mm-hmm. they're received. They're brought into the church, you know, taken to the throne. Um, and so, and, and then the, um, you know, they can, you continue the hierarchical orthros. Okay. Um, and then at some point the hierarch comes off the throne, uh, takes keros and, and, it, and there's an initial prayer, uh, for the actual consecration. Okay. Uh, I believe that is offered early on, um, kind of during the orthros. Okay. Um, and then, you know, there's, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite clear. I have to go back and look if he's, that happens before or after he's vested. Um, okay. But, you know, the, the, the hierarch is vested and the clergy are vested. And then the, the relics are brought uh, back out. You know, the 142nd Psalm is read. There's a small litany that's offered. There's a few prayers, a quick prayer. And then there's a procession that starts to t- take place around the church. On the it, inside or outside? You know, it depends. I mean, I think the rubrics sure. say around the outside. I mean, obviously you have practical considerations there. If you can actually yeah. walk around fully around the outside of the particular church you're at. Right. That's not always the case. Uh, like, for example, in uh, Nashville, 20, Tennessee, Holy Trinity there, you could not walk around that church very easily. Oh, right. The steep it, hill on the back uh, yeah, side. It's, yeah, it's, you're kind of up on a hill and, and that would be difficult. And other churches, you just, they're not built in such a way as you can walk all the way around them on the outside. Mm-hmm. Or I guess if you have really bad weather, um, sure. you just stay inside. That's something you can always anticipate. Uh, so there's, there's three, there's a procession, there's a canon being chanted, and the relics are being processed around the church. There's mm-hmm. a little table set up with, you know, the gospel book and things um, on the out- outside of the doors, the front doors. Okay. And there's kind of a stop each time around where there's uh, a gospel reading, um, you know, a prayer, a litany. Uh, and the gospel readings are really, uh, there's epistle reading as well. So for the first stop, for example, the epistle reading is Paul's letter to the Hebrews, uh, the second chapter where it's talking about um, Christ and mm-hmm. him and the incarnation. Uh-huh. And the gospel uh-huh. reading is from uh, Matthew 16, which is uh, the Apostle Peter's uh, confession of faith. 
you oh, are the Christ, okay. the Son of the Living God. So the the first two readings are kind of, you know, about Jesus Christ. Yeah, you know, and about His person. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and oh, so on sure. and so yeah, forth. Of course, that makes sense. And then you continue. You start the procession again. You know, carrying the relics around mm-hmm. the perimeter of the church. So it's kind of like the 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 relics are kind of marking off the territory of the church uh-huh. as they're being processed around. And then there's the second epistle reading. So there you have Paul's letter to the Hebrews again, uh, the ninth chapter, which is talking about the tent and the sanctuary. Yeah. Uh, and then the gospel reading is according to Luke, where it's talking about Mary and Martha, mm. which is really interesting. You know, Martha sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mm. Um, so we might come back to that, but that's the, the second reading. And again, the hierarch takes up the, the patent, processes with the relics as the rest of the canon is chanted. Um, and the canon, of course, is a long liturgical poem of Treparia. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, comes back around, and then there's a prayer that's offered at the third stop, um, offered by the hierarch. Um, and then uh, another prayer is offered, and then there's kind of that dialogue that you see, like, at a Theodonixia, a door opening, where the doors are closed, someone's on the inside, the hierarch oh, okay. is knocking on the door saying, lift up your gates. So you rulers and be, be lifted up. You everlasting doors and the King of glory shall enter. Yeah. And the response, yeah. I guess I'm, I'm most familiar with that. Cause I know the Antiochians do that at every Pascha. Right. Right. But we do it at the door opening ceremony. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, here again at the consecration of a church. Yeah. Very cool. And then the respondent, who is this King of glory? The, you know, the archbishop, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord powerful in battle, lift up the gates. O you rulers and be lifted up your everlasting doors and the King of glory shall enter again. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord powerful in battle. And then this, this happens again. And then there's the Apotekion for the consecration, uh, which is chanted. And, and before that though, the hierarch takes he lifts up the patent with the with the saints' relics on him, mm-hmm. and he makes the sign of the cross three times in front of the doors. Mm-hmm. You know, before the doors are opened, and then you know the, there's an entrance with the apolitikion for the consecration, and then mm-hmm. the relics are taken. You know, basically straight down the uh, altar mm-hmm. or the aisle, excuse me, and and placed right upon the altar. Mm-hmm. This is eternally be the memory of the eternal be the memory of the founders of this holy house. Okay. Uh, is is offered and the people respond you know eternal be their memory yeah uh, so you mentioned the apolitikion of the consecration so the consecration has its own specific mm-hmm. apolitikion yeah it says you have made the earthly beauty of the holy tabernacle of your glory to be like the majesty of the firmament on high O lord make it strong forever and ever and accept our supplications that we unceasingly bring to you there at the intercession of the Theotokos, for you are the life and the resurrection of all. Mm, that's very the, nice. Yeah, so it's kind of talking about this, you know, this image from Hebrews, uh, that the tabernacle is a, a copy of what Moses saw in heaven. Yeah. Kind of making a reference to that passage. Very cool. Yeah, so that, like I said, the relics are placed upon the altar table. There's a prayer that is offered. Um, the saints are invoked. They're mentioned in that prayer whose relics, you know, he has been carrying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's another prayer that's offered that mentions the name of the church. Uh, and then there's a lot of Psalms that are kind mm. of chanted antiphonally in the consecration service. The first one is, um, 
144 in the Septuagint rendering, 145 uh, in the Masoretic rendering. It starts off saying, I shall exalt you, my king, and my God and my king, and I shall bless your name forever and unto the ages mm-hmm. of ages. Mm-hmm. And so that is, that is being chanted. And then finally after that, there's the Lord is my shepherd psalm is also oh, wow. sung antiphonally um, by the choir. And so while the choirs or the chanters are singing the psalms, the archbishop pours some of the mixture of wax and fragrant substances um, into the prepared cavity in the altar table. The holy relics are placed inside the cavity, which is then filled with the wax mixture and sealed with a piece of marble. So the relics of the saints go into the altar table. And this, Mm -hmm. you know, invokes back to the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. Uh Uh-huh. You know, where it talks about the martyrs underneath the altar table crying out to God in heaven. Yeah. And so the church from time immemorial has celebrated the divine liturgy where the remains of the martyrs were buried, were placed. Right. Churches were built on top of the remains of the martyrs, of the right. relics of the martyrs, I should say. You, you know, so there's this, there's this connection between the martyrs and the church. The liturgical calendar, you know, got built because, you know, the church would remember that these martyrs uh, gave their life for Christ on these on this day. And mm-hmm. so they would gather together every day on the anniversary of that, you know, to celebrate their martyrdom, to celebrate their witness. Yeah. Um, because they become saints in heaven. Uh, and, and earlier, I failed to mention that the relics are at some point uh, placed in a reliquary. I think that's when they first come back into the church. Okay. So they're, they're kind of placed in a little silver reliquary before they're put into the altar table with the wax. Okay. And they're sealed in, and a lot of the elements that are used that are mixed with the wax are some of the elements or, or the elements that were used to seal the tomb of Christ. Okay. okay. So there's that kind of connection there uh, as well. Okay. And then, uh, you know, the, the archbishop puts on the savanon, the white garment. Uh, on mm-hmm. top of his vestments, and he gets ready to wash oh, the altar. over his vestments. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. And, and he gets ready to wash uh, the altar table. Mm-hmm. So just the same way that someone, when they're baptized, they're, they're, they're immersed in the water. They're washed in the water. Right. Uh, so in the same way, they're going to bless water, and they're going to wash down uh, the altar table. Mm-hmm. But this is, um, I believe... Yeah, this, but this is after a prayer that's offered while everyone is kneeling down. You know, that prayer says, O God, without beginning and eternal, you brought all things from non-existence into being. You dwell in light unapproachable and have the heavens for your throne and the earth for your footstool. You gave a command and a pattern to Moses and inspired Bezalel with the spirit of wisdom and thus enabled them to complete the tabernacle of testimony wherein ordinances of divine worship were instituted which were the images and types of the truth. You bestowed on Solomon breadth and greatness of heart, and through him you raised the temple of old. And later, through your holy and all laudable apostles, you inaugurated worship in the spirit and the grace of the true tabernacle. And through your apostles, O Lord of hosts, you planted your holy churches and your altars throughout the world, so that spiritual and bloodless sacrifices might be offered to you. You have also been well pleased that this church was built in the name and it, you know, whoever the church is being dedicated to. Mm-hmm. Oh, immortal and munificent king, remember your tender love and your mercies, that they are from everlasting. And do not abhor us who are defiled by many sins, nor degrade your covenant because of our impurity, 
but now rather overlook our offenses and by the grace and descent of your holy and life-giving spirit, strengthen and enable us to perform without condemnation the consecration of the sanctuary and the dedication of the altar in it, so that in this too we may bless you in psalms and hymns and mystical ceremonies, we may magnify your compassion at all times. You, Yes, O Master, our Lord, our God, the hope of all the ends of the earth, hear us sinners who make our supplications to you and send down your all-holy, worshipful, and almighty spirit and sanctify this house. Fill it with eternal light. Choose it for your dwelling. Make it the place where your glory dwells. Adorn it with your divine and transcendent gifts. Make it a harbor for the storm-tossed, a healing clinic, a refuge for the weak a place where demons are driven out. Let your eyes watch over it day and night, and let your ears be attentive to the supplication of those who enter it with the fear of you and with reverence, and who call on your all honorable and worshipful name. And thus, whatever they shall ask of you, you will hear it in heaven above, and will do it, and you will be gracious to them. Keep it undestructible unto the end of time. Make the altar herein a holy of holies, by the power and action of your all-holy spirit glorify it more than the mercy seat of the old testament that the sacraments that are celebrated here may reach your holy heavenly and spiritual altar and obtain for us the grace of your most pure overshadowing we do not trust in the ministrations of our unworthy hands but in your ineffable goodness i love some of that the, a healing clinic a haven for the storm tossed a refuge where demons are cast out yeah important reminders of what the church is yeah, what the church is and what it's for. Uh, so the water is blessed. It's a very short blessing for the water. Mm. And then it's poured. So it's not the like the blessing uh, for the baptism or the blessings at uh, uh, Theophany. Yeah, he's, you know, he's, he, he's given a pitcher of warm water, uh, which he blesses with the sign of the cross three times, saying in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he offers the prayer. And then he pours some of the water and the sign of the cross three times on top of the holy altar. Okay. Saying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So just the same way that, you know, we are immersed three times. Right. Um, so the water is poured in the sign of the cross three times. Yeah. Uh, over the altar table in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So then the choir begins to sing Psalm 83 in the Septuagint rendering, or Psalm okay. 84. How beloved are your dwellings, O Lord of hosts. Oh, My sure. soul yeah. longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Makes total sense. Yep. The archbishop washes the entire altar table from top to bottom with soap and water. Oh, wow. Dries it with clean towels. Uh, when it is finally dry, he says, glory to our God unto the ages. He takes a container filled with rose water and other fragrant substances, which he sprinkles on the altar table in the sign of the cross three times as he recites the following verses from Psalm 50. You shall sprinkle me with hyssop and I will be cleansed. You shall wash me and I shall be made whiter than snow. You shall make me hear joy and gladness. My bones that were humbled shall greatly rejoice. And then the mm -hmm. choir continues to sing the rest of Psalm 50. Um, and then he takes the container of the holy chrism. So, you know, when we're baptized, we're also chrismated. Yep. So then he takes the container of the holy chrism. He pours the holy chrism on top of the altar table in the sign of the cross three times. Each time the deacon proclaiming, let us be attentive. And everyone sings, mm -hmm. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. And he does that three times. And the psalm that's chanted by the choir, Behold now what is so good or so pleasant as for brothers to dwell together in unity. Mm. And so this is continuously chanted as many times as necessary as it takes for the archbishop to apply the holy chrism over the entire top of the altar table. Mm -hmm. So with his finger, he makes the sign of the cross over the posts that support the altar table. 
and he wipes the altar table with the andamensia. So the andamensia uh-huh. are the cloths with that depict the icon cloths that depict the burial of Christ. Right. And they are eventually used in, you know, on every altar table and they bear the signature of the hierarch and um, the, they're needed for celebrating of the divine liturgy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And this is, so every church has those. And of course they do sometimes wear out, but this is uh, kind of when the bishops have the opportunity to replenish their stock is at the consecration of a church. So they'll, they won't just do one or two for the parish that they're consecrating. They'll do many, many because those can then be distributed to churches all over. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a tradition where the presiding hierarch of a particular region, his uh, andamencia might be at all the churches under, that are underneath his omophodion. I don't know how strict that is. I don't know if that's strictly appri- applied in all jurisdictions, but you can see the practicality of when he does a consecration of using many andamencia mm-hmm. uh, so that he would have many to be able to distribute to those churches. Right. Beautiful psalm that's chanted, an ancient vesting psalm, Psalm 131. Remember David, O Lord, in all his meekness. How he swore to the Lord and he vowed to the God of Jacob, I shall not enter my dwellings, I shall not recline on my bed, I shall not close my eyes in sleep nor my eyelids for dozing, nor give any rest to my temples until I find a place for the Lord, a tabernacle for the God of Jacob. Mm -hmm. So very beautiful. So as this psalm is being sung, uh, the archbishop uses wax to affix paper or cloth icons of the four evangelists to the altars, you know, one on each of the corners. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then he vests the altar table with a white linen covering. Yes. Katasarkion, I believe. So he's wearing the Savanon, and then there's the Katasarkion. So they're both white. Mm-hmm. And you see this kind of strong connection between mm-hmm. the hierarch wearing white over his vestments uh, and the, then the white cloth that goes on the altar table, and it's kind of tied with a cord, mm-hmm. and, and it never comes off. Like right. once that's done, that one always stays on there. The, the ornate... Um, kind of vestment cloth is put on top of that right uh, for the different liturgical seasons of the year the different colors and things like that so then the choir sings the following psalm the lord reigns he clothed himself with majesty the lord clothed and girded himself with power this is also the psalm we say when we're covering uh the gifts at the proskomedi service yeah uh, when we're putting the one kalima or covering over the patent where the star is right uh where the lamb is Uh, that is to be consecrated for the Eucharist. And so then the altar cover is placed on the altar table and on it the andamensia one by one next to each other and on top of them the andamensia of the church and on top of that the holy gospel book and and then he venerates the holy altar table and he says glory to you holy trinity our God glory to you unto ages of ages. And then the choir sings Psalm 25, the Septuagint rendering, Judge me, O Lord, for I walk in my innocence, and by hoping in the Lord I shall not weaken. And it continues on for there, and it says, O Lord, I love the beauty of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one of the verses from the Psalms. So then as the Psalm, that Psalm is continuously being chanted as the Archbishop takes, uh, he senses around the holy altar table, as well as the clergy within the sanctuary, the church, and everyone in it. And then with a container of chrism and a sponge on a pole, he anoints the church with the sign of the cross, the east wall above the arch of the sanctuary, the mm-hmm. west wall above the gate, and the north and south walls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every service making the sign of the cross or the monogram of Christ, the hero. Uh-huh. 
Uh, and when they are finished sensing and anointing the church, the archbishop and his assistants return to the sanctuary. And a new vigil lamp is presented to the archbishop who pours oil into it and invites the benefactors and members of the community to add oil as well. Huh. So people come up and put like a little sprinkle of oil in the kindly. Yeah. Interesting. Very uh, cool. You know, and then it then it's lit. Uh, and then, you know, to be put back onto the altar table. Mm-hmm. And then the archbishop removes the white tunic or the sabanon. And then he exclaims, glory to the holy, almighty, and life-giving trinity, now and forever into the ages of ages. So the, uh, there's a small litany that takes place. And then the archbishop stands before the holy altar table and he offers uh, a prayer. I'm not going to read it. It's, it's a longer prayer. Again, a very beautiful prayer uh, that talks about the establishing of the church and all of those mm-hmm. kinds of things. Uh, and then there's one last prayer that is offered after the giving of the peace. Uh, and then one of the main verses, you know, fill this altar with glory and holiness and grace so that the bloodless sacrifices that will be offered to you on it may be transformed in the most pure body and precious blood of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm. So again, kind of making that connection uh, between the, the consecrated table, the celebration of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So um, a few things, a few more things. So we have uh, from Nicholas Kavasilas in his book, The Life in Christ. He talks a little bit about the consecration service. Okay. So one of the things, I'm just a few highlights to share from that. Uh, it's published by St. Vladimir Seminary Press. If people are interested in getting a copy and reading, it's a wonderful book, the whole thing. But it says, uh, the hierarch approaching the sacred rite in his white linen garments is a vested type and image of the altar, which is man himself. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, you know, he says, uh, if a man, as David says, wash away all my wickedness and become whiter than snow and rec- and recollects himself and bends in on himself and bows down, that makes God truly dwell in the soul and makes the heart an altar. So the whole, the heart of man is to be like an altar and the ceremonies are signs of these things. So he really makes a strong connection between, you know, the hierarch celebrating the consecration the physical reality of the church itself, uh, the space and the altar table. Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes the hierarch an exemplar of the altar is not only that he is himself a craftsman of such things, but that human nature alone of things visible is truly capable of being a temple of God and an altar. Mm. Since it preserves the image and type of that which is fashioned by man's hands almost like the the archbishop in this service is more appropriately the altar Mm -hmm. and the altar comes to represent him just as of course like saint nicholas says you know the altar represents every human heart yes because because we are the dwelling place of the holy spirit as we pray you know as we talked Mm -hmm. about last month in the uh the heavenly king prayer well and that goes back to christ himself yeah destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. Right. You know, uh, you know, referring to himself as the temple. Yeah. Right. And it also reminds me of this conversation with the Samaritan woman. You know, Uh we say on Mount Gerizim is where you must worship God. You guys say in Jerusalem is where you must worship God. And Jesus says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, it is neither in Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem that the father seeks those who worship him for he seeks those who worship him to worship him in spirit of truth. He is spirit. Mm -hmm. 
and he seeks those who worship him to worship him in spirit and in truth. So he makes reference to that first Psalm, Psalm 145, going back to Nicholas Cavasilas, uh, as an act of thanksgiving to God and a memorial of his wondrous deeds. He mentions Psalm 23, for they mention baptism and the sacred anointing and the chalice and the table on which is the sacred bread. So remember that verse from the Good Shepherd Psalm. You set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Yeah. So that's being chanted, right? While we're, while we're preparing the, and the altar table is being consecrated. Mm-hmm. They call baptism the waters of comfort and green pastures, the state, uh, and state that he who is well shepherded by God will dwell with him forever. Yeah. So there's a lot of other really great stuff in Nicholas Cavasilas. I'm not going to go through all of it, but just a few other things. Uh, he says, there is nothing more akin to the mysteries of Christ than the martyrs, since they have body, spirit, manner of death, and all other things in common with Christ. Mm. He was with them while they lived, and after they died, he did not leave their dead bodies. Mm. He is so united to their souls that he is somehow present and mingled even with this mute dust. Hmm. So if it is possible to find the Savior and to contain him in any visible thing, it would be in these bones. Wow. So in these bones, there's a strong statement, and these bones are are placed in the altar table, right? So again, making that connection, the altar table, you know, is an image of the hierarch. The hierarch is an image of Christ himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So connecting all of these things. So he says later on, in addition, these bones are a true temple of God and an altar. While that which is made with hands is the imitation of the real. And finally, it says in yet another way, the church is called the temple of God in order that it might refer to the true temple and have something in common with him. It was necessary that as Christ was anointed with Godhead, that's the meaning of the word Christ, the anointed one, right? Right. Uh, so it should become an anointed thing by being anointed with the chrism by the temple of God. I mean, his most sacred body as he so called it by saying, destroy this temple. So again, Nicholas Gavasilas is, is making the strong connection between Christ and as the temple, Christ yeah. being the temple, uh, and the consecration of the church where the Eucharist is to be celebrated. Yeah. So there's that very strong connection that's being made all throughout the service. Yeah. So all of that, all of that takes place when a church is consecrated. That's a lot. Yeah. It's, you know, it's the baptism, chrismation, anointing, marking off of the space with the procession of the holy relics, placing of the holy relics in the altar table. Um, What a powerful and amazing service. Yeah. And then when you finish all that, you start the hierarchical liturgy. There you go. <laughs> so it's gonna be it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be a good day. Mm-hmm. So I guess some questions that kind of come to mind that people might have. So the the church has functioned uh, since two thousand eight when it when it was opened, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so why do we need to do a consecration? Clearly, we can. It it is a church. It's functioning as a church. What is a consecration? Uh, what's it important for? Well, you know, like we said, it it dedicates it, you know, completely and fully to God. It's like the church's baptism. Uh, It's the marking off of of it as a sacred space. I mean, we're able to celebrate the liturgy on the table because, you know, we have the Andamincion. We have the Hierarch's blessing to do that. We can celebrate the services in there. Um, But this is a a necessary and important step that needs to take place. Um, So it's, it's, it's waiting for it. So in, in some sense, it's almost 
of course it, it is not but it's almost functioning like kind of a chapel because we can serve liturgy anywhere is with the you know the blessing of the hierarch as long as we have that on dimension and it is the consecration that kind of says this whole space this whole structure this is a temple yes it's marked off for the service of god it has the holy relics and the altar table um you know all of these things so mm -hmm. so you know this is obviously a good and important thing so why do we not just consecrate churches like as soon as we have them built why isn't that the first thing we do well it's it's up to the hierarchy i think you know it's important for the church to be you know fairly complete if not complete you know with the iconography uh -huh. with the you know with the furnishings as much as possible um i, I can see a practical uh reality where the hierarchs uh you know, want the church not to be in debt. Um, uh -huh. Is it a property that could be in danger of being seized? Sure. Uh, because of loans and whatnot, because it's completely being dedicated to God. It needs to be free and clear. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's not always the case, um, but uh, it's really up to the hierarch when the church is, is consecrated. And my sense is, uh, you know, it needs to be well on its way uh, sure. in that regard. And I'm sure so you, that it's it's different for different hierarchs. It's 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 you know ultimately it's their call. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, you know kind of being debt free and making sure the church is kind of safe. Can we can plan on it continuing to function as a church mm -hmm. for some time in the future? Is there some kind of process that needs to take place that is almost like a reverse consecration if that building is ever going to be sold to some other entity? That's a great question. I've heard that. I, to be honest, I really don't know. Hmm. Okay. I've never been in that situation. Um, that'd be a great question for Metropolitan Nicholas. Yeah. Maybe. You know, because that's obviously happened. I mean, that happened here. The church moved from Fritz right. and Penn, where it was, and came here in 2008. Right. And had that had the church on 40th and Penn been yeah, had been consecrated? Yeah. It was consecrated, I think, in 1990 by um, Archbishop Yakovos of blessed memory. Oh wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be interesting to know. Um, we'll, we'll we'll do some research and maybe uh, yeah, update or if, people in our next episode. Or if or if there's any liturgical gurus or experts out there that can help us with that, um, let us know. Yeah, yeah very interesting. Mm -hmm. Any other questions you think people might be curious about? Or I mean, this is just to kind of get people's feet wet to get them kind of introduced to the reality right. of of a, a church being consecrated. Right. Just kind of. It's, it's helpful to go in knowing what's in store and mm -hmm. kind of the, the importance of the actions that are going to take place, the significance of those. And of course, we'll hear the prayers, um, mm -hmm. but sometimes we might lose focus because it it's going to be a long day. <laughs> yeah. And I will have, I am planning to have books made so oh, everyone great. can follow along. Uh, great. And, you know, and everyone will be able to be present and, and see pretty well what's happening. Um, and uh, so it'll be there'll be lots of opportunity for engagement when cool. people are there. But but, you know, it's also more in, in, in reverse what you were just saying. It's also it's always much more significant when you're actually there. Of course, absolutely. When, you're, when you're in the space, because you're in the space where the spirit is being called down upon. Right. I mean, you know, every every liturgical service that I served or even before I was a priest, when I was present there, I always left feeling different mm -hmm. you know and i mm -hmm. think that's that's the grace of the holy spirit 
um, when we gathered together for prayer and, and his work, you know, we, we go there to do work, uh, you know, for worship, but then work is also being done on us. Yeah. And that's true in every kind of liturgical scenario. You know, I think Christian Smith, isn't it? He kind of challenges people to think about other things in life as liturgy to realize that you're kind of engaging in liturgies all the time, whether you realize it or not. And they're working on you. James Smith. Yeah. Sorry, James Smith. And they're working on you all the time. And some of that may not always be good. Right. Right. Yeah. He kind of talks about like the, the liturgy that takes place when we go to the, like the shopping mall or the liturgy of a football game or. Right. And which is, I mean, it's not that it's bad to go to a football game or anything. No, but, no. And that's not what he's saying. But, but to, but to kind of have this idea of, of this, there's something liturgical about this and, you know, in a way and, and liturgy is not just something you do, but something that is also being done on you. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of going back to what you were talking about, you know, discussion we we're having at the beginning, you know, being in this secular age, going back to Charles Taylor's uh, work is, um, you know, we have this understanding in the modern secular age that we're like impermeable and yeah. only that which comes in is what we allow in. But people for the longest time did not have that understanding. And they certainly had an understanding that no, 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 like things affect you. Yeah. And, I, and I think people are kind of coming back to that. I think people are realizing that yeah. more, more and more today uh, and having open discussions about that, which I think is a good thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so things affect you, you know, not just mentally and emotionally, but spiritually as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So coming to this consecrated, dedicated, holy space. Yeah. I'm looking you know, forward to it. Where the saints, the relics of the saints are, the martyrs are, you know, where the, yeah. where the, you know, the walls are anointed with the holy chrism. And we ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit to come down and really sanctify this place and to be present when that happens. Yeah. Uh, and to see all of that and to be engaged in prayer during that time. It's just amazing. Amazing yeah. experience. Very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else, Father Bryce? That, that's all I've got. All right. Well, where can people go if they have questions or topics they want us to talk about? If you have any questions that you would like us to discuss in any of our upcoming podcasts, you can email us at churchcoffeepod at gmail.com. Or even better, you can leave us a voicemail at 317-660-5498. Thank you for listening to the Church Coffee Pod. If you enjoyed what you heard, like, subscribe, and leave a review. Make sure to tell your friends that church coffee isn't so bad after all. Peace. Take care. God bless.